As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, that didn't take long. The era of a five-person conglomerate trying to guide the Canucks into what the future of the organization is going to look like. Well, it just lasted a couple of days. Stan Smeal, for all the debate about the best GM in Canuck history, there's only one. Stan Smeal that was undefeated, 2-0, a perfect 2-0 for the Steamer before he gives way to Jimmy Rutherford. Longtime NHL executive Jim Rutherford, uh, at 72 years of age, is the new president of hockey operations for your Vancouver Canucks, and he takes over from Stan Smeal as the interim general manager as the club continues to look for a GM to do the day-to-day operations of all of this. And with that, Drancer, there is not a lack of news as we hop into the latest episode of the VanCast. Nope. We know that Jim Rutherford is the interim GM. We know that Stan Smill... Well, we don't even know what really happens to Stan Smill. Does he just go back to his previous job? Uh, That part hasn't been clarified yet by the organization. We know that Jim Rutherford will conduct a search for a full-time GM and, and thereafter just be the president of hockey operations. And we know that the Aquilini's this time around didn't have they didn't have the president of hockey operations ready to go when they fired Jim Benning but it didn't take them long did it Farhan which means they were having the discussion before they made the final decision on Jim Benning and it was more a case of how this was all to be structured and I got to be honest like I'm a little disappointed that they couldn't have just left Stan as the interim GM for now and I, like I get it because ultimately it's going to be Rutherford's vision, right? In terms of what he's specifically looking for in a GM. But I got the sense that what Stan had to say to the group mattered, that it made sense, that it resonated with a lot of those young guys. And, you know, 
taking him out of that position that quickly. And and again, we knew it wasn't a long-term position. And maybe I'm reading too much into nothing because ultimately this is going to be about Bruce Boudreaux and how he interacts with these guys. But, you know, we I think we're both led to believe that the players, the message that Stan Smeal delivered resonated. And I think if all of a sudden Stan Smeal is now back to uh, a role in the organization that doesn't have the level of meaning he's had for the past week, that maybe that message gets diminished somewhat because now he's not there to force them to make good on that and to hold them accountable towards that. So are you surprised that they just turned right so quickly, given the fact that they're still looking for a GM? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm more than, I, I'm not surprised because I had, I mean, I think we all had a sense that if they could land their guy, they'd move fast, right? I think in the event that they decided not to do Rutherford, if they decided not to make that type of an investment, then I think we would have seen a drawn out search. But, you know, I think back to May, like I think back to May and and I remember writing in May that what the organization arguably needed most was to make a change without a ready-made successor that, you know, in the 15 years, the Aquilini family's owned a majority stake in the Canucks. They'd never gone through a lengthy recruiting process, right? That they'd always hired the replacement and then made changes internally from there. Like, I, I think about the fact that Francesco keeps coming back to the idea that the club is surprised by how they've performed and how galling that is, considering that every single objective model thought that the Canucks were an 80 to 85 point team, maybe 90 and maybe, you know, between 80 and 90 points, but not a playoff team. And Vegas picked them to miss the playoffs. And they were so narrowly focused, so trusting of the hockey voices around them. Like for all that, <coughs> for all that hockey operations autonomy has been a watchword in this market. You know, there's a, there's a distinction Farhan between providing autonomy and not, having sufficient bullshit detectors to understand that you're being sold snake oil, right? Like there, there's a, there's sort of like one thing you want an owner to do, provide autonomy. The other thing, no one, no one things are off the rails, you know, also is important. And it's like the connects do neither and end up in the worst possible spot. And it just feels like this was such an important time uh, and an opportunity missed to go and get permission to talk to 20 or 30 of the smartest AGMs and director level people in the league and, and the out of work people too. And, you know, get some straightforward unvarnished truth about the organization and how it's seen and where it needs to be better and what other teams are doing. And, you know, I do wonder if that's a, like a pretty significant missed opportunity in terms of helping ownership get to a level in terms of their hockey knowledge that might prevent them from being misled for a long period of time, like what's happened here over the past eight years, but especially over the past, you know, seven months and, and really especially over the last three years. Yeah, all true. I, you know, because I, again, I, I kind of thought that this was the right way to go about it. You get your instant impact in the dressing room, but you also get a chance to take your time and make the right decision. And, and, you know, yeah, you've got their people time. They bought their time. Yeah, like it, it seemed like a good setup that you 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 made your impact, but then you didn't rush here, and now it feels like they've rushed again. But let's talk a bit about um, about Jim Benning. So you use the word autonomy. Jim Rutherford doesn't take this job without being guaranteed a level of autonomy. What do you think that means to ownership? What autonomy truly means to ownership? I want to figure out 
exactly what that looks like because you're right. I mean, Jim Rutherford must have a good sense that he's going to have, you know, a, a lot of leeway to build this organization in his image and the way he sees fit. But is that protected? Like, what does that mean? I don't know the answer to that question yet. And I'm really curious to have a have a more thorough or robust understanding of the specifics before sort of commenting at, at too great a length. The, the thing that I note, though, is that, you know, it's like the first hundred days of a American presidency. Like, that's where you have a, the legislative power to get your agenda through. Like, that's co- sort of the sim- a similar experience here, I think. Like, until, you know, you're going to have some leeway as an incoming general manager or an incoming president of hockey operations in Rutherford's case to make the changes as you see fit and probably spend money, like probably invest in a variety of different things that the organization requires to get back on track, relatively unencumbered for a bit, right? The question is over the long haul, is that autonomy durable, right? Like in two and a half years, does you know, sort of the creeping sense that, you know, there's some lost faith and some questions being asked and maybe, you know, your hand is now fighting for space on the wheel. Uh, Does that begin to creep in? Because that's sort of been the experience of past managers and, and hockey operations leaders in this organization over the past 10 years. So we'll see, you know, I'm sure you're right. And I think that for at least the outset, we're going to see Jim Rutherford be the only guy driving. Um, where where it goes from there, though, how that evolves, um, is that autonomy durable? That remains a huge question mark for me. Yeah, because ultimately Trevor Linden was in the same situation, right? He wasn't going to step into this and get his hands dirty and risk affecting the legend if he weren't guaranteed he was going to get autonomy. And ultimately that didn't wind up happening, or, or maybe it did early on, and then it just went away. Um you know, as, as the club didn't necessarily like the direction it was going and they wanted to speed things up a little bit and were told here was a way to do that. And, and then all of a sudden, autonomy went away. Now, by extension, Jim Rutherford as president, you know, as, as we talk about ownership autonomy, I, I'm curious to see what Rutherford is going to hire in a GM because Rutherford's an old school hockey guy. Right, I don't know that he's going to embrace some of the new ways of doing things. I could see him hiring a GM in like a young guy that he can mentor to be in his image, or somebody that's been out there for a while that he knows thinks the same way, as opposed to wanting to you know do what you and I and many of the fans hope that this could turn into a professional organization. And you know what we mean by that, just in terms of a lot of layers, many voices, lots of opinion and lots of resources, right? Yeah. Uh, as opposed to one guy driving the ship. And I get the sense from Rutherford that he's also going to want to be in control. And that might be tough to find a dynamic, progressive general manager to sandwich in between an old school president and an old school head coach. Rutherford's not as simply... Uh, cut from that old school cloth, um, you know, he has empowered analytics folks uh, in Pittsburgh and in Carolina, Caramanos, and of course, Sam Ventura, who's, you know, a, one, a thoroughbred in- intellectual power um, in terms of a uh, front office personnel. So, you know, hopefully we see an investment in analytics. Hopefully we see you know, some of Vancouver's existing and talented analytics folks, whether it's Aiden Fox or Ryan Beach or, or Jonathan Wall, empowered further and, and hopefully complemented further by additional 
bodies and, and additional sort of layers. Um, you know, Jason Botterill was his right-hand man in Pittsburgh to the point where, you know, there, there was consideration of bringing Botterill back after his Sabres job fizzled out in Pittsburgh before Rutherford sort of rather abruptly departed seven games in the last season. Um, and, you know, Botterill is fundamentally like a cap guy, right? Like he's a cap guy and a pro scout. Like those are, but, but a pro scout with a sort of penchant for the analytics type of, you know, un, uh, like undervalued guy. That's sort of the, the specialty that, that Botterill had prior to, you know, w- what happened in Buffalo, which was not good. <laughs> Without question, not good. The Skinner contract and the Ryan O'Reilly trade in particular standing out. So, you know, I wouldn't be shocked to see Caravanos or Botterill types, both relatively progressive assistant general manager types considered. Um, you know, the, the other sort of names that, that have been ringing out in the industry prior to the Rutherford news. So not not saying like today, but like Thursday night, Wednesday night, as I was building my list, like John Ferguson Jr., Chris McFarlane, Lawrence Gilman, like relatively progressive names were the ones that were out there uh, in connection, you know, with with the Canucks job, like as as contenders. So uh, we'll sort of see where that goes. We'll see how widespread the search is. We'll see if Rutherford, like the Canucks, just pounces on one of his guys uh, and brings him in. We'll, we'll see if Ryan Johnson gets serious consideration because I, I think that's a possibility as well. And, and of course, I do think if there's sort of one thing about Rutherford that makes the most sense for the Canucks, and, and actually there's two, and we'll get to the second in a bit, but the first one is, you know, Tom Fitzgerald, Bill Guerin, um, Carmanos, uh, Botterill, like there's a long list, uh, Shiro, like there's a long list of guys who've come through, um, who've come through working with Rutherford and ended up being NHL general managers. Like, you know, he's got a pretty large management tree. He seems to be a pretty effective developer of executive talent. And I think one thing that sort of happened at the end in Pittsburgh was that they were all gone. Right? Like there was no one around Rutherford anymore and they ended up sort of promoting Alvin and just like they sort of didn't have any bodies. They sort of were out. The, the, the organization itself got hollowed out right before he left. Um, so, you know, if, if Rutherford goes about building a dynamic organization, a big tent group that manages things and has diverse opinions and functions together – I think that's good for the Canucks, right? I think that's good for for this team, especially with the need to develop the likes of Chris Gear, Ryan Johnson, Henrik and Daniel Sedin. Like that would be a positive step for this club. And at least that's one attribute that clearly, clearly, um, you know, Rutherford has in his history. Although it sort of turned out with a lot of those guys leaving and not being replaced so we'll see how he does with a new group or, or overseeing a new group or does he bring in his own guys? Like, I'm really curious to see what the structure looks like under him. I think that'll tell us a lot about the direction of this team. Lawrence Gilman is a name that seems to get attention here whenever we talk about replacements for Jim Benning. And obviously, we all understand that Lawrence worked very closely hat in hand with Mike Gillis. Uh, and, and even Gillis's name got mentioned at, at one point, but... Gilman has always been that guy. He's been very good at managing a cap, but he hasn't had the chance to to run his own show. Is there a fit there with Gilman and Rutherford in Vancouver? Maybe. I mean, we'll see. I, I'm curious to, 
I'm curious to see exactly what Rutherford says about what he's looking for. But typically speaking, his right-hand man has been a details guy, has been a cap manager, has been, you know, one of those guys who's a little bit more technocratic, a little bit more in the Gilman type mold than, you know, uh, like a, a drafter. Right. Like he's not a guy who's likely to go out and get like the hockey scout or the super scout as his number two. He's more likely to go have a Botterill or a Gilman or a McFarland type, a day to day guy um, as his number two. So, you know, there seems to be a bit of a fit there in terms of what Rutherford is typically leaned on. But I I don't know that there's any type of relationship there. So that might be a complicated, complicating factor. But I do think, you know, like my understanding this week was that. Gilman was in serious contention in both Vancouver and Chicago. And, you know, that, that from, from within the industry, that was the expectation. I'm not sure if the Rutherford hire, like if that was a prior to the Rutherford hire take, or if, you know, he he's in that class of AGMs that the club has been lining up to chat with post bringing in a president. So we'll see. One thing we do know is that Bruce Boudreaux is a fan. He talked to Mike Russo earlier in the day and he said that, look, they've uh, known each other for 45 years. I think he scored his first goal on Jimmy Rutherford, but really? um, they they seem to be of like mind. Interesting. I didn't realize that he'd scored his first career goal on him. Um, that's a, that's a classic. That's a good, that's a good little tale. Um, well, and I think Rutherford then like a week after got traded and, and um, Boudreaux got sent down to the minors. Fair enough. <laughs> so so it, did, it, didn't all, it didn't all end well. It didn't end well. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, hopefully this ends better. Um, you know, do we have a sense that this was approached in tandem or is this an arranged marriage? No, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it sounds like some of this stuff was done in lockstep and or not necessarily in lockstep, but I, I do believe that, uh, you know, from what we've seen to this point that Rutherford was quite comfortable working with Boudreaux and Boudreaux certainly says that, you know, he, he thinks that if anybody can turn this around, it's a guy like Jim Rutherford. So obviously they're all saying the right thing so that we can all play well in the sandbox, but you know, it, it certainly seems like philosophically they're, they're somewhat aligned. Yeah. And I mean, Rutherford's Pittsburgh teams played relatively up-tempo. Um, you know, one thing about Rutherford, right? His teams have won cups with like the least impressive blue lines <laughs> of any cup winning teams <laughs> no kidding. Uh, of the last 25 years, basically. So that auger as well for a Canucks team that doesn't have a lot on the blue line, right? Like that, that seems like a good fit. Um, and then here's the other thing that Rutherford has because he's got such an extensive tree because he's got such an extensive group of management disciples scattered throughout the league right? He seems really adept at moving on from bad contracts. (laughs) Like he's really good at turning one thing into another thing. Now it's not always for the better, good Branson for Pearson, but he's like insanely aggressive and really good at moving money for other types of money and and for different types of players and and finding shakeup trades, even in good times, he's shaking it up, right? So you know, I think that argument as well in, in terms of when you look at what the Canucks need to do and how creative they're going to need to be to just shuffle the deck a little bit and get something, get a different look from a player personnel standpoint. Yeah, I was looking at the trade numbers surrounding Jim Be- or su- surrounding a Jim Rutherford, I should say. And uh, in his time as Penguins GM, I just saw a tweet here that he made 59 trades from 2014 to 2020. 
so he's certainly not afraid. And if we, you know, if we called Benning Trader Jim, I, I think I think this version of Jim might be a little bit more aggressive. Yeah, he's um, real yeah. Trader Jim. Yeah, we will. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get into just again more fallout or potential fallout from this move, but also what we've seen through two games with the Vancouver Canucks. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So if you're Jim Rutherford, what is your first move? I understand you're trying to find a GM, but if you decide you're going to take your time in making that decision, you probably are still anxious to evaluate and make adjustments soon. Like how much time do you give yourself to evaluate this roster before you try to make some potential moves, even if a GM's not in place at that point? Well, I mean, it depends what you think. Like it depends what you think about the problems that this team was going through. Like, do you think that what you've seen from this team is roughly their level, right? Maybe a little bit better, assuming the penalty kill is slightly better. Um, And that means that they're a middling five on five team with some good top end talent and a really bad blue line. Or do you think that there was something fundamentally off with the start of the season and that maybe this is in fact a 95 point team disguising itself as a, as a 65 point team. And you want to see a month of their, games played under Bruce Boudreau before doing anything. And you've got sort of a pretty natural opportunity to do so. There's a roster freeze coming in pretty soon, right? That sort of locks this roster in, like locks locks you into giving Boudreau something like 12 or or 15 games, right? So, um, you know, do, do you wait until the roster freeze ends? I think you probably do. I don't think you make any moves quick. I think you basically give it a month and sort of see where you're at and see what the Boudreau effect really looks like in terms of the club's form and, and go from there. And that's sort of what I'm expecting is, is, you know, I don't know when we'll even meet with Rutherford or when he'll travel to Vancouver yet, but once he arrives, sounds like it could be early next week, maybe Monday. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, not, not Friday, right? Like not pregame Sunday. So we're sort of looking at a few days here before we even think he'll be in the building. Right. And then, and then from there, you know, I think you want some time, chat with players, chat with people, evaluate staff. Like, you know, maybe you spend time on the GM search and on figuring out how the organization functions and where they need help and where they need change and, and going from there. So I would expect relative stasis for, for a short while and then probably a pretty big flurry. But the good thing about getting a guy in, like how often have we talked about all this team's needs, all the things they need to evaluate and make decisions on, you know, getting this done now and now Rutherford has two and a half three months before the deadline and on March 21st um yeah three and a half months 
Like that's a good amount of time before you before you really have to come to some pretty crucial decisions on the future of your team and and even some of this team's core players. You talked about Rutherford having, you know, he's got three cups and some of them were done with really poor blue lines, as you pointed out. Why is it that Boudreaux's had so much regular season success and nothing in the playoffs and Rutherford's had some pretty ordinary regular season teams, but all of a sudden they seem to be playoff built? Yeah, I mean, I don't really have an answer for you. I think it's, I, I the game does change, but I don't think it's anything specific about Rutherford's teams. Like, I don't think those Penguins teams were built for the playoffs, do you? Like, not really, but I mean, you've got, I guess you've got two elite players and you can ride them because you know what you're going to get all the time. Totally. And, and, you know, sometimes they've been injured or what have you, you get right? Great goal, and you get great goaltending well, and that'll be, that'll totally. be enough. I look at the 15, 16 Penguins or like some of those cup teams or, or what have you, right? And it's like, you know, they were pretty much 51 teams. I mean, it's not like they were, win, you know, get in and anything can happen teams. They were, 104, 111, they were great teams. Like, they were 50-win teams. So, you know, I, I don't know that he's a guy who's just an ordinary... He, when his teams have success, they're good teams. Like, they're not necessarily fluke teams, in my view. Um, maybe Carolina, but but even that. Like, even the Carolina Hurricanes team that won was was pretty impressive. No? Like, they weren't... They weren't nothing. Yeah, between Stahl and Brindamore and some of the pieces they had. I mean, you know, they had they had good goaltending at that point. But yeah, I, I covered that cup final and I covered their last two rounds of the playoffs. And yeah, that was a legitimate team. Yeah. And, and w- when was that? 05, 06, right? Oh, 06, yeah. Oh, it was, uh, yeah, 04 Tampa, 06 Carolina, 05 lockout. Uh, yeah. Farhan, that was a 53-win team with a sub-900 save percentage. <laughs> like... They Martin Gerber started 60 games for them and sucked, right? Like, wasn't very good. And Cam Ward played 28 and was even worse. And then you get to the playoffs and Cam Ward steals the job after they fall behind two, two games to the Montreal Canadiens, right? Is that, that's, that's as I recall it. And then, but, but Gerber loses the first two games to the Habs, or at least the first game to the Habs. And then, Cam Ward comes in and he's 920 and all of a sudden a 53 win team with, you know, like we remember that team wrong. In fact, that team is like remembered as like one of the least impressive cup win teams. Right. But it's like Eric Stahl, like Stillman. I mean, that was a good team. They had Justin Williams who was only 24 at the time. You yeah, know, Doug like, Wade finished, right? He played in that last game, but was part of their playoff run. And, yeah. and I, you know, I remember them playing Buffalo in the conference final and, and Buffalo was like, they were at defenseman, like literally defenseman number 13 and 14. Yeah. And their, and their defense was not impressive. I mean, like Hedekin, Caberlet, like, you know, but, but I mean, you look through it now, you look through it now too. And it's like, you know, guys like Eric Cole and, uh, Craig Adams had a huge, like massively long career. Um, you know, like Andrew Ladd while on the, on their fourth line. Like in retrospect, Andrew Ladd on your fourth line, you know, with like Recky, Whitney, Wait, Matt Cullen, 24-year-old Justin Williams, uh, point per game Corey Stillman, like still pretty damn good. Um, you know, Rod Brindamore is still like, you know, he's 35 or something at the time, but he's like you know, his body was like 22, right? Like, I mean, that, that team wasn't necessarily, or not even, wasn't necessarily, that team was not the fluke team that we sometimes remember it as. That team was pretty damn good. They had a 100-point, 21-year-old center in Eric Stahl. 
They were a 112 point team with bad goaltending, and then they got a hot goaltender in the playoffs. Like, not a huge shock. The team they beat in the final was the fluke team, but that's uh, that's another no, story. No, no, they weren't. They that was a good Come team. On. The that Oilers, a, yeah, that that was a good team with Chris Pronger, and they had uh, they had trash goaltending, and then they traded for Dwayne Rollison. It was Chris Pronger. Yeah, the team mean, was Chris Pronger. Yeah, okay, but, uh, you know what? But they were they were not. They were not trash. They like really weren't a bad, bad team. No team can get to the final and be trash, but that was not a cup final team. That was, yeah, I, 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 yeah. Actually, I you know, uh, but let's, let's not, let's not get into the 06 Carolina Edmonton weeds. My point is, my point is just that like every time Rutherford has won a cup, it's been with a hundred plus point team, 48 wins being the minimum wins that any of his cup teams achieved. So, you know, the idea that Rutherford is like a, you know, it's like Bergevin constructing playoff made teams that sometimes aren't even built for the regular season and struggle to get there because they're too playoff built. Like, I don't think that shoe fits. You know, I think Rutherford's, I think Rutherford builds teams around quality forwards. I think he builds them aggressively, uh, particularly on the trade market. Um, you know, I think, I think if you look at Pittsburgh's draft record, by the way, over the past six, seven years, like under, under Rutherford, um, Let's just say it would be a talking point in Vancouver. And so that's sort of a that's sort of an interesting dynamic here. Uh, two is, you know, because I don't think Vancouver's fared very well in the last two drafts and there's not a lot of prospects in the system. And this is an asset poor organization. So I do think it's going to take, you know, I'm, I'm really curious to see what path he charts in terms of trying to improve quickly or in terms of making the bold moves to win in two, three years, because I think the latter approach is clearly what's needed. And I'm just curious to see if that's the approach that a classically impatient organization with new leaders that have an average age, you know, in, in at, at a, of about 69 um, are going to have the appetite for. Yeah. I think that's tough for a 72 year old to have a three, four, three to four year rebuild. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but we'll see what they We'll see Although what they come Rutherford, up with. Rutherford, as a, like, famously doesn't feel old. Sure. But, you know, so, like, he would not but that like, doesn't mean, he that doesn't like mean he's going to famously feel patient. No, no. Well, and, and he's not famously patient either. So, an interesting fit and, and one that I'm curious to see how it, how it plays out. But, you know, I think a lot, too, will hinge on how the Canucks perform now under Boudreaux and, and whether or not they look like a team that could be close with some tweaks. And I think there's fans in the city that now believe that. Don't you think? Like, just after two wins, people are like, it was all the coach. Absolutely. That is out there. There is no question about it. And if they go on this, you know, mini week by week progression that Bruce Boudreaux is saying is the way to go, you know, just win the week, gain a point in the standings every week. And we're going to look at this. And if they've gained four points in the standings in a month, everybody's going to say, buyer. Oh, right? my like that, God. That's, that's how that's going to play out. You and I know this. You know, oh Lord knows the owners have invested enough to think that. Yeah, I'm curious to hear on Monday what Rutherford's take is on what he's seen of this lineup to this point. Yeah, me right. Too. Obviously, he he had to be watching closely the last month as things started to swirl and circulate and all of that. And you know, interesting. You, you talk a bit about just where they're at in terms of assets and drafts and cupboards being bare. And and you know, we 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 had a brief online discussion with Mark Spector about it because <laughs> there's certainly some differing views there, and some of that is just you know based on who you prefer as a GM or what you thought of the Mike Gillis era uh, versus what we're seeing now. And there's certainly different ways to kind of perceive it uh, based on what your expectations are of any given GM at, 
the varying times of what that team's roster, what their output is, right? Based on what you can draft with, right? Uh, we, we certainly know that while Gillis's group was famously poor in the draft, they also put themselves in a situation to not have enough swings because they invested assets in trying to win now. Whereas you get a bit of both here with what we've seen here for the last eight years. You, Yeah, you've seen some high picks, but you've also seen some draft picks traded away just to, to try to find ways to win now. So it's... Um, it's been a bit of both as far as this group is concerned. But uh, let's let's change gears and talk a bit about what we've seen from the Canucks under Bruce Boudreau. And obviously the first beneficiary, the biggest beneficiary has been Brock Besser with goals in both of those games. First game was a bit fortunate, right? Uh, going in off Drew Doughty, but a deft deflection in this game and a player that Boudreau has said, look, in terms of Besser and Petey, he has just said, shoot, 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 shoot. How much of a difference are you seeing? I mean, I just think the team looks a little looser. I feel like they look like it's a breath of fresh air. But I thought I thought Wednesday's game against the Bruins, the victory, was look I mean, looked to me pretty much like the Canucks team we've seen all year. Like they you know they had zone time, but they didn't have chances. You know, like they looked like that team to me again on Wednesday after a much more impressive performance on Monday against the Kings. Um, I thought they did some things nicely. Like I thought the D hit the forwards with some quick ups well in the second. I thought they outnumbered the Bruins with discipline in the neutral zone. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, the penalty kill is where I think the biggest difference has been seen because of that pressure game. But other than that... You know, I'm not like I, I didn't see a totally different team like, wow, what a difference on Wednesday. I thought I thought Wednesday's game was sort of uninspiring. I, I thought the Canucks didn't play that well at all. I didn't think the Bruins played well either. And I thought both teams worked, but it was like one of those sloppy games where both teams work and, and no one really accomplishes much. That's sort of how Wednesday felt to me. And so we'll see how it we'll see how it develops against Winnipeg playing their fourth game in six nights and then Carolina playing their fourth game in six nights, but still a huge test because Carolina is incredible. And uh, and, you know, I'm curious to see if we see more games like the one we saw against L.A. on Monday or more games like the, the more familiar form that we saw from the Canucks on Wednesday against Boston. On the show uh, with Mike Russo, which uh, you, you'll get a chance to hear tomorrow if you're a Canuck fan, and uh, obviously Boudreaux and Russo had a pretty good relationship from their time working together in Minnesota and when, when Mike covered them. But he talked about, uh, first of all, Pedersen, that he doesn't think Pod Colson or Podzi or whatever his name is, because he's still figuring out names. Uh, he didn't. Th- he doesn't necessarily think that Garland and Pod Colson are the right fits, and I'm not sure either one of us does either. But what what do you think his takeaways are from what he's seen from Pedersen and in Bruce Boudreaux's mind, the way he coaches the game? What do you think it's going to revert back to? I have a feeling this is going to revert back to the lotto line. Right. You think you think that happens eventually? Yeah, because it, he he clearly is a massive fan of JT Miller. And I think he's going to believe that Miller can get the best out of him. Now, what, you know, and then now, does he think that Pedersen and Hughes are going to be the right fit? Just because, sorry, Pedersen and Besser are going to be the right fit because he wants them both being volume shooters. And sometimes being a volume shooter, you don't want to play with another volume shooter, right? So I'm not sure about that, but I do think you're going to see Miller with Pedersen very quickly. I agree with you. I think we will as well. But I also think, you know, like 
they sicked Horvat with Dickinson on a matchup line, the you know one of the best lines in hockey in the perfection line, and Bruce Boudreaux raved about that performance. So I'm curious to see exactly how they handle the fact that you know Boudreaux seems to like Dickinson on the wing and seems to like him with whomever, whichever center he's playing in matchup minutes, right? And so I think there's you know, an interesting wrinkle. Like, I wonder if we might eventually move to something, especially now that we've got a new coach uh, who separated Pearson and Horvat at long last yesterday. Like, I wonder if we might see something like Dickinson, Horvat, Miller at some point. <laughs> Although I guess that would leave them a little center poor. Um, but, but, you know, I'm curious to see exactly how they, you know, the Dickinson wrinkle is one to watch anyway, just as you sort of work through what Canucks forward lines might be, because in sort of back-to-back games now, we've seen Dickinson change lines and play with whichever forward was matching up at home against the opponent's toughest line. And and I'm curious to see if that's a trend, like is that signal or is that noise, uh, especially because we're only two games into the Boudreaux era. I'm curious to see it, uh, but I suspect that there might be something there that Boudreaux and, and Scott Walker, who's familiar with Dickinson from their shared time in Guelph, uh, sort of like about that look. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think there could be some intriguing fits there, but that center dance is going to be interesting, right? Because it, it's going to be tough. Like you, you certainly have to decide how you want to play JT Miller. I get the sense that he's, you know, he's not going to be afraid to play him in the middle. Like we've certainly been, you know, we've cringed at times when we've seen Miller in the middle. He's been better the last little bit when he's had to go there relative to what we saw a year ago and even the first, uh, you know, first month of this season. But um, yeah, like, you know, how's he going to see Dickinson? Is he, Like, you certainly can't put Miller, Dickinson and Horvat together as you outline. And, you know, is it the best thing for Horvat to be a matchup guy at this point? Because we, we just think that there's more there offensively. So yeah, I'm curious to see what it looks like. But, um, you know, it is nice that there's going to be a complete fresh set of eyes on it. Right, because for for Travis Green and even for us that that have been watching it, we've we've come with our own conclusions. We've already drawn conclusions, so I think it'll be good for the players to get a fresh set of eyes and just a new set of ideas. One of which is Quinn Hughes on the PK. Now Quinn Hughes has talked about it. I don't like being labeled as this offensive defenseman. I want to round out my game. Is he nuts? <laughs> What do you mean? Well, look, I went on I went on with Donnie and Dolly and I said, look, it's not a bad thing. But if you all of a sudden, if you're Quinn Hughes or you're a coach and you think Quinn Hughes is a mainstay on your penalty kill, look, the last thing I want is to see Quinn Hughes blocking shots, right? Like that's just not a good idea. So, you know, he's slight. He's you, you want him with the puck. You don't want him eating the puck. So, yeah, should he have the ability to be an option at times for a small amount to give somebody else a breather, right? Should he play 30 seconds of a two-minute penalty kill on average? I can live with that. But the last thing I want is to see Quinn Hughes playing significant PK minutes. Right. I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted about skill players playing on the PP, on the PK. But I do think in Hughes and Pedersen's case, their, their comments in public over the past few days indicate to me that there's something else there. It's not necessarily like it, it's about belonging in this league. It's about showing that you belong in this league. It's about showing that you can do the grunt work, right? That like, you're not just a skilled guy. You can help a team win in the trenches. Like, and I think when it's that type of thing, when it's that type of like need to prove yourself, I think it's different 
than than just being like I would like to play all the minutes. You know, I think there's something more there in terms of them needing to show themselves something and also show their peers something. And so I think it makes sense to give them that chance just because of what it'll do in terms of their overall, you know, sense of themselves in this league. But I also think over the long haul, the injury risk is not going to be worth it to have those guys play, um, you know, significant PK roles. Absolutely. Uh, one quick break. We'll come back and look ahead to what's remaining here on uh, the homestand because uh, just a lot of opportunity here, if nothing else. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Drencher, I want to dive into the schedule in a minute, but first, a couple of takeaways from Boudreaux's conversation with Mike Russo, and one is a deep affection for JT Miller, right? And I I touched on that a moment ago, but we've debated what JT Miller is. I mean, we understand that he's a strong personality and that he has the ability to be a a leader on this team, and he has the ability to be an anchor on this team, depending on which version of JT that you get. He's got all the attributes to be the straw that stirs the drink and to be that just emotional catalyst. But at the same time, when things go bad, he's got that brooding personality that can bring a group down. Um, I get the sense, and, and certainly... Boudreaux, much like yourself, appreciates the amount JT Miller swears. He says he swears more than more than the coach himself does, but uh, and he said that with with a great deal of affection. But um, I get the sense that JT Miller is going to wear a letter uh, and he is going to be a mainstay, not just in in terms of what the offensive output expectations are and things like that, but just heart and soul leadership with a contract year coming up. I, I think he has the ability to change the narrative around JT Miller. You think Boudreaux does? Yeah, maybe. I mean, the fact yeah, that, absolutely. But but what's the narrative around JT Miller? Well, that he's not going to want to stay here, right? That when his contract's up, they've got some tough decisions to make with Horvat, Miller, and more and more short term this offseason with Besser. And we've all speculated as to whether or not Miller is long for this place just based on the numbers alone. But I think by the time the dust settles here, if Boudreaux gets an extension, um, you know, this offseason, because they like what they've seen enough and they, they want to, you know, not have him going into a, you know, a lame duck year, as it were, and everybody's happy with what they've seen. I think it's going to change a lot about what we look at in terms of leadership and where Miller is prioritized. Yeah, you know, and there was an interesting comment about uh, JT Miller's leadership from Boudreaux. Did you hear that the other day where he was talking about Getzlaff and how, (laughs) you know, Getzlaff would often be the guy who addressed the room when things were bad, but that he had more authority to do so when he was playing well as opposed to when he was playing poorly? Did you hear that? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I thought yeah, yeah, you talked about the whole leadership not needing a you don't not needing a letter and so on and how he wanted to spread out leadership and things of that nature. But, but I just but think Miller's a guy. But specifically, he went to a story about Getzlaff's authority, be you know, sort of um, matching his form in an answer about JT Miller specifically. I thought that was a little loaded. I did too. To be totally that's honest, that's your with captain. You. That's your captain, JT Miller. Well, no, no, I'm saying Getzlaff's your captain, and he's drawing that comparison. Oh, okay. I, that's not what I thought was loaded about it. I thought it was a suggestion what, what that did you maybe see? I thought it was a suggestion that maybe like like an oblique and polite a parable. I'm not going to say a suggestion, but a parable uh, that serves as a reminder to anyone who's going to be leading the charge. Like, boys, we got to work hard. Like, boys, we got to be harder. You know, like, hey, you can't do that if you're turning the puck over. You know, like you got to be the yep. guy playing right and doing the right things. If you're going to say that, like, I sort of thought it was a parable to remind everybody about that uh, side of it. You know, in the event that Boudreaux wasn't just being honest with us or, or just sort of t- speaking off the cuff, but was in fact communicating to players through the media, or if his comments matched something that he'd had a conversation about internally, like that was sort of the thing that I wondered if he meant by telling that story. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, for, yeah, no, totally. I like, I get it, but I also think part of that, just the fact that you're tying those guys together, tells you what you think JT Miller is capable of doing to that entire room, right? So you want the accountability piece that you can't just like, you can't just talk it. You got to live it. But I believe you can live it, and I believe you can lead, and I believe you can have this impact. Like me personally, like as much as. This has the ability to get a little more out of Hughes and Pedersen and Besser in the short term. I think the two players that are going to benefit the most by Bruce Boudreaux's arrival are JT Miller and Tyler Myers. Players who are feast and famine players. Right? Right. The best of them is the worst of them. And I, I think I think Boudreaux has the ability to get those two guys to potentially cut down their turnovers and to play with a level of accountability with the dangle of leadership. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think that's a fair point. And and I say that because I'm betting that Boudreaux also, like me, doesn't believe that those young guys are ready for that leadership role. Yeah. You know what? You know what, though? I want to read you a text that I got from a listener who heard our uh, podcast the other day. Okay. And he, he disagreed with you. He, he really disagreed strongly with you. And he, he, he sent me this text, and I think it's good listening. So I want to discuss it. It's on the topic of accountability. Okay. Ready? This is the text. He says, accountability is a two-way street. If you want fucking buy-in, you need to be accountable to the players too. Who was accountable when all their teammates left angrily in UFA after being given the cold shoulder? Who was accountable to them when the team agreed to the, that compressed post-COVID death march schedule? Who's been accountable as the room has clearly become toxic? And the Keystone leaders have either twisted in the wind or long proven incompetent. You got to earn someone telling, or you got to earn telling someone that they have to work harder. Demanding accountability from the fucking players after this disaster at this juncture is small-minded, poor leadership, and the best way to ensure you never get them to be accountable to you or the organization. It's a good rant. No, it, it is. <laughs> hey, listen, but have, have we have we not have we not gone after the organization hard on? how they handled COVID and how they handled the off season when they let those leaders go. Well, sure. I mean, we totally right? did. Yeah. 
But we so did. I, I, but we did. Yeah, but I think I think that. But what were the Smeal's rent? Smeal's no rent was. Smeal's rent, I think, was the players haven't taken their share. Because a lot of that happened then, but now you've got a team that you've added to, right? So if you're an organization and we've done a bit more for you by bringing in a Garland, by bringing in an Ekman Larson, um, you know, you might feel that, okay, yeah, they've, they've turned the page on that. And as an organization, they've attempted to give more. Now, we both know the organization had been previously big time flawed, but the players have to earn it too, right? Like the players have to own their part of it. You can't sit here and tell me that, like Pedersen's play to this point in the season is somebody else's fault. No, no, no. I'm not buying that. No, but I think the idea of accountability overall, right? Um, To some extent, the, to some extent, the organization does and did need to prove itself again, rebuild credibility in that room and rebuild credibility in that market. I think they've gone out and got a couple bell cow, big name pieces, leadership pieces, then that, I think that matters a lot. But I think there's, you know, I think that's a big step and I think that's a good step. Um, and, and I do think that there's an understanding anyway that, you know, like why players would have looked at, you know, even in the wake of those changes and maybe been less than bought in with what this organization was trying to accomplish. No? Yeah, no, it's all, f- it's, it's all fair, right? But I like I said, when you... When you start a season the way they did, I just, I have a difficult time. Like, I think you come to a point in a season where frustration takes you to that point. Yeah. But I, I don't think that can happen at the start of a season, any season. Yeah, fair enough. No, I, you know what? I don't, I don't disagree with that entirely, but I did think it was an, an interesting counterpoint that I was sent no, by, it, our, it by is. one of our listeners. It, it, Hey, I always, and you know what? That's a great, that's a great listener. That's a great point. It's a great VIP because we know our listeners are intelligent, right? Um, but like I said, when I look at it, I, I think, yeah, there's accountability has got to happen on every level. And certainly the owner finally did that, right? By making wholesale changes. But I just, I found for me in a micro sense that the leadership of the room was turned over to the players before they were ready. Yeah. Well, Jim Benning, Jim Benning intimated the same thing, right? Remember when he did his last availability? Oh yeah. Right. And he, he wouldn't, he didn't say it directly, but I sort of drew the through line for him and um, you know, it was present in what he was saying. hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I think for him, that's where it had to go at that point because he felt he'd done his part and now the disappointment had to fall on the players, right. Uh, and the coach, because, you know, obviously he would have made that decision himself if he could have. Um one interesting note is that he's had a chance to work with Brad Hunt in Minnesota. I, I didn't realize right. that. And just he's trying to lean on him to get to know some of the names and personalities and who's what in this locker room. Yeah. Well, and I, I've talked to Brad Hunt a little bit about Boudreaux, right? And, and you know, the thing about them both is they're super positive people, right? Like, I think there is a real kindredness between the two of them. Um, so it's a good like player in the room partnership for Boudreaux to be able to lean on, even though Brad Hunt hasn't been in the lineup uh, as a regular this season, he was for Boudreaux in Minnesota. He was an everyday player and he played really well, but um, you know, I think that's a really useful partnership, especially because there's clearly a fair bit of mutual affection there. Probably a great thing for Hunt as well, just to get a chance to potentially be a regular because the bottom of that group is, um, you know, they're, they're, it's pretty shaky and he, Boudreaux doesn't have to have any loyalty, right? And really Rutherford doesn't no. either because none of them signed Tucker Pullman. No. Well, and also, and also for Brad Hunt, you get a clean slate. Like you didn't impress in your chances under the former coaching staff. 
You've been, you know, iced in the press box for much of the season. Now you go back in the lineup, you've got a shot to have a clean slate, right? To, to write a new story for yourself in your hometown. Sounds like there's going to be a need too. Boudreaux talked about defense by committee for a little bit uh, with uh, OEL and then Travis Hamannick as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they need another lefty in the lineup. So it's Brad Hunt time. And look, Brad Hunt, among the underperformers in the opening part of the season, I've had a lot of people be like, you said Brad Hunt was good. And it's like, okay, look, I, I might, I'm going to miss on some players sometimes. Um, you know, at least I miss on the 800 K guys signed for one year. <laughs> like maybe you should hold your, the management team that you, that you support to a higher standard than you hold your local hockey podcaster who just watches a lot of games. Cause he loves the sport. Um, that, that would be, that would be my idea. I have a lot of people too, who are like Mason Appleton sucks. And it's like, guy has a PDO of 93 and makes 900 K like calm down, <laughs> calm down. Plus, plus. The list of guys that I was right about, like Kampf and and Kasha, they all they all sign with the Leafs. Uh, far dwarf my misses, but Brad Hunt is a good player, a good player, a, a better player than he's shown to this point in his Canucks tenure. And considering the quality of this blue line, he can help in a meaningful way. Like he can help in a big way once he gets in. Uh, I'm curious to see how he performs given another shot under boot. Three more home games on this home stand. We'll see if the Canucks can squeeze a few more points out of it. You got the Jets tomorrow night, the Hurricanes on Sunday, and then Tuesday it is the Blue Jackets. We're still another week after that before Drancer's favorite team comes to town on the 18th of December. Uh, you know who that is, Drancer. You know. Who? The Toronto Maple Leafs. Oh, right. Right. Who are they? Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, meanwhile, if we've, been, we've been referring to... The Russo interview. So again, if you want to hear Bruce Boudreau, your head coach of your Vancouver Canucks, he's Mike Russo's guest Friday morning on Straight from the Source. So early uh, tomorrow morning, you'll be able to catch that. I think like Jeff was telling us it was going to be up like at 6 a.m. So if you want to get up that early, if you're keen, do that. Ian Mendez and down goes Brown. Get you set for another busy weekend of NHL action on the Athletic Hockey Show on Thursday. Thank you for listening to the VanCast. And please follow us on your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. You can subscribe to the Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. To get all the bonus content from our entire network, this week it's the Athletic Hockey Show's Wednesday Roundtable. They provide extended bonus content. It starts with a 30-day free trial, then just 99 cents a month after that. Right now, you can get annual subscriptions to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. Well, what's going to happen next? We talked about a coaching change. Now we're talking about a president of hockey operations. I am just chomping at the bit to see what happens when we do this again, my friend. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a new day. And so we'll see what comes with that. But no matter what, Boudreaux and Rutherford are a gift to the media. <laughs> yeah, there is no question about that. An absolute gift. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to uh, see Jimmy Rutherford again. I, you know, he could be available as early as Monday. I'll be traveling back from the Grey Cup. So Sunday, I'm going to have to watch that Jets game after the fact because I'll be a little busy in Hamilton, but uh, I'm looking forward to watching it and catching up again. Likewise. Likewise.